That's the sound of me prepping the grill with Reynolds Wrap. And the sound of me not doing dishes. And the sound of me spending more time outside with my family. Easy prep, cook, and clean. Make time with Reynolds Wrap. I like the sound of that. Spring is basically a second holiday season. Mother's Day, Father's Day, weddings, the list goes on. And what better way to celebrate them than with Drizzly, the go-to app for alcohol delivery. Drizzly is the easiest way to shop local stores and compare prices on a huge selection of beer, wine, and spirits, then get them delivered to your door. Download the app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com today. Must be 21 plus. Not available in all locations. Hey friends, what's up? Welcome back to the show. Okay, bonus episode. Um, today marks the one-year anniversary of the January 6th insurrection, and that is a big deal to me both personally and to us as a community. Um, I remember that day well. I remember following all the news, just being completely shell-shocked at what I was seeing and um, at the Christian symbolism that really dominated what we saw. So I brought on the show Samuel Perry, Dr. Samuel Perry, who wrote the book, Taking America Back for God. It is um, quite the standard for understanding Christian nationalism. It's full of research. Um, Sam has really become a, a, a leading voice on, on on Christian nationalism, what it is, what, what it isn't, what it looks like, and where it's heading. So I brought him on to talk about that and the insurrection, and that's what we do. I really appreciated Sam coming on to have this conversation. We talk a lot about um, things that we talk about often, but in a more academic way, which is great because you need people like Sam who are doing the hard work to get the data to show us where we're heading, where we're going, and also what contributes to uh, the Christian nationalism that we're seeing. So I hope you enjoy this bonus episode. That being said, the reason why we're able to do these kinds of episodes is because people support the work that we do. So a huge shout out. Thank you very much. If you donate to the show financially, it helps us be able to make these episodes happen. If you are able to help us out, we would love to have it. Honestly, friends, full transparency. We want to start 2022 off strong. We're trying to hit our funding goal and we're not quite there yet. Anything helps. Anything truly helps helps monthly to, to get us to where we need to be. That covers my time, covers our overhead, covers the, the effort it takes to make the content. This episode, for example, was recorded yesterday. It is 24 hours old. And in that time, I was able to record it, get it ready, and then post it. And that's because of the generous donations and, and um, financial contributions of this community. So that being said, if you like this episode, please share it with friends. Um, Sam is very non-threatening, meaning even conservatives can listen to him and understand what he's trying to say. Uh, so I recommend sharing the episode if you like it. All right, without further ado, here's my interview. Have a great day. Well, Dr. Samuel Perry, that's your official title. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. It means a lot. I mean, we, we, we talked a few days ago and here we are making the recording happen. So thank you. Yeah, sure. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Also, I want to make a point to the audience out there. This is something I've noticed with academics. Whenever I talk before we record, I always say, do you prefer to be called Dr. So-and-so? And they go, oh, no, heavens no. But I just want to make the point that if I had a doctorate, I would say, hell yes, call me Dr. <laughs> Whitaker. I earned that thing. So, you know, I appreciate the modesty, but but people like yourself put a lot of time and effort to get, you know, the PhD. And so, you know, I just want to say uh, kudos to you, my friend, because I, I can only imagine how much work it is. 
Yeah, no, 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 no problem. In, in my family, I'm, I'm not the first person to get a PhD in my, uh, in my, in my, in my family. So it's, it's, uh, you know, I, I think it is, I think it is important not, not to hijack that, but I think it is, it is important to be able to recognize that sometimes, especially because there's, I think, gendered and racialized components and kind of like who gets respect and, and credibility. But, yeah. uh, as, as, as far as me, like, uh, you know, people in my family were like, yeah, add one to the pile. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Well, Sam, why don't we start here just for sake of some backstory? Why don't you kind of introduce yourself to the audience? Who are you? How did you grow up? How, how did you get into the field that you're in and what do you actually study? Yeah, sure. Uh, first, this is, this is fascinating. And I'm, I'm just like really delighted to talk to the audience that, uh, that, 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 uh, listens into this podcast and, 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 uh, and that's a great question. I think um, all social, social scientists, I think, uh, study things. No, maybe not all. I shouldn't say that. But I think the vast majority uh, of social scientists study things that are relevant to them personally, that they personally find some kind of connection to or mm. fascination uh, with. Yeah. And uh, certainly that that uh, is is uh, very much the case in my own situation. So I grew up in an evangelical home. Uh, parents met on campus crusade staff. My dad went to Dallas theological seminary. We moved to Dallas, Texas for that reason. Mm. And, uh, you know, uh, I've written about adoption a, a lot. That was my first book. My dissertation at the university of Chicago was on adoption and evangelicals adopting and my family adopted. I have two African-American sisters that I grew up with and, uh, and we grew up really having, having these dinner table conversations about race and, and, and racial identity and, and, uh, navigating this non-traditional family mm. space. Uh, and this was before, you know, transracial adoption became a cool thing. Like, you know, it became a popular like thing for yeah. people to just do for Christmas cards and stuff like that. And, uh, yeah. and, and so, uh, you know, I, I remember growing up in this, in this very, very Christian, very devout space. And also this space where, I was always having questions about race and racial identity and these issues and tensions that we were, we were looking to resolve as a family. Uh, and so I got to college and I, I uh, discovered sociology and I, and I thought this is, you know, this, this discipline is asking the questions that I, that I've always uh, asked. And so I was fascinated by that topic. Mm. Um, I got out of undergrad and uh, worked for a college ministry called campus outreach. I mm-hmm. uh, just, it's kind of like, like crusade or navs or intervarsity. Mm-hmm. Disciple making ministry, uh, went to seminary at Dallas seminary, like my dad had done before me. And I think about halfway through my seminary education, I just realized, um, I really like what I'm doing. And I, I, I did well at, at, at that kind of academics, but what I, what I really loved, uh, seminary wasn't exactly like tackling those kinds of questions. And I remembered sociology. I remember, you know, going back to those issues of like, Mm. what, what is actually affecting people's lives at the grassroots at the ground level and how I can understand that better. Yeah. Uh, so I went to go on and get a graduate degree in, in sociology. And so now I study those things that always fascinated me as a, as a, as a young person, I study religion. I study uh, primarily uh, white conservative Christianity in the United States. I study issues of race and families and now for the past seven years, politics uh, really yeah. deeply. Yeah. Um, and that's where I am now. I'm at the university of Oklahoma as a, as tenured, associate professor teaching and studying those issues. 
Wow. That's great. Yeah. Um, you know, I first discovered you through a book that you wrote um, with Andrew Whitehead, Taking America Back for God, Christian Nationalism. Um, I think, what's the rest of it? Has it? I don't have it in front of me. But anyway, something about Christian Nationalism. But you know, I, I got the book on audio. I, I quickly regretted it, thinking, oh my God, there's so many stats here that I need to see. Um, but besides all that, the, the book was very helpful. You did a lot of really, it seems like very intense work. Why don't you kind of break down maybe some of the points of the book as far as like the general thesis and like in how you how you form the book, that kind of thing. What's the book really trying to do? Yeah. So uh, we have three primary arguments that we're making in the book and we, we lay that out in the in the introduction. But even backing up a little bit, and I, I always want to stress this, the book is not about white evangelicals per se. Mm-hmm. I think white evangelicals read that book and see it as like a critique of like white evangelicals in particular or some kind of attack mm-hmm. on them. We actually say that in the preface, like this book is not about white evangelicals because Christian nationalism extends beyond white evangelical spaces. There are white Catholics. There are, there are sec, there are secular people that we are seeing now that embrace elements of Christian nationalist ideology. And I can explain that and what that means in a little bit, but there are mainline Protestants and, and people of, of non-Christian religions who embrace elements of Christian nationalism. So it's not about white evangelicals. Uh, and we, we are, we are certainly not out to to criticize devoutly religious Americans uh, or even uh, people who want to vote their value, their religious values, and they want to integrate all of all of their faith with all of their lives, right? Like, I think that's kind of inevitable, and so we're not critiquing. Right, right. We're not critiquing just like the 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 historic relationship that we feel like there is between religion and American politics in ways that are helpful for democracy and unifying and, yeah. and beneficial, I think, for society. Uh, what we're what we're critiquing is is Christian nationalism. So I'll define that and then I'll talk about Perfect. the arguments in the book. So yeah. uh, Christian nationalism, as we define it in the book, is an ideology that idealizes. So it says this, this is kind of the standard. It idealizes and it advocates a fusion of American civic life and belonging with a very particular kind of Christianity. And whenever I say Christianity, I always want to put the word Christianity in quotes there, because I don't mean like people who just want to follow Jesus. I don't mean the Nicene Creed or like some kind of confession, you know, like Mm -hmm. it it really isn't that sectarian. What what I mean when I say Christian there is I is is so fill in the fill in the the phrase Christian, the word Christian with um, people like us, right? Like, so it, it means in the mouths of Christian nationalists, it means, uh, it means culturally traditionalist, conservative, uh, ethnically, if not racially white native born, like born in the United States, um, and not necessarily Protestant, but like generally Christian in identity. Yeah. So, Christian nationalism seeks to fuse American civic life and belonging with that understanding of Christian Christianity, uh, Christianity that represents conservative, ethnically white, middle class, capitalist, uh, traditionalist kind of understanding. So it's not like all Christianity at all. Yes, uh, it's, it's a very particular kind of, of Christianity. So in the book, what we're trying to, to argue is first, we're arguing that Christian nationalism matters, uh, that Uh, You really can't understand what's going on in the United States and American politics, especially since Donald Trump, without understanding Christian nationalism. 
Uh, and by the way, I should clarify this. Christian nationalism is both an ideology, and that's what I've been talking about thus far. Pol Christian nationalism is also political strategy. Yes. And th those two things are different. So an ideology is something that I can internalize and hold, and, and it kind of motiva motivates and mobilizes my uh, behavior. Yeah. Uh, a political strategy, uh, I can I can deploy uh, without ever even believing Christian nationalism at all. And I think that's Trump is a, a brilliant example of, of somebody who, who probably doesn't believe anything. I don't, I don't think Trump believes anything. I, I think Trump is, uh, I think Trump believes in himself. I think Trump believes in the bottom line. I think right. Trump believes in winners and losers. Right. Um, he's really an opportunist. He's an opportunist. Right. Yeah. And, and he has actually been good at <laughs> leveraging Christian nationalists, yes. uh, Christian yes, nationalist rhetoric as a political strategy. And yes. even when he's good at it, he's good at it because he leans now the, uh, these days, he leans hard on his speech writers to be able to kind of feed him this language. It's, I mean, if you ever actually see him give a speech in person, which I did a couple of weeks ago at first Baptist Dallas, yeah, it's a very Ron Burgundy kind of moment where oh, like, yeah. it's obvious that he is reading from the, the <laughs> script, like whatever somebody has put in front of him, he is trying, maybe he's giving a little bit of a riff or commentary on, but like, yeah. His Christian nationalism is something that he has kind of learned to like parrot so that he can mobilize people who actually really do believe that. So yeah. first argument is Christian nationalism matters. Second argument is that Christian nationalism uh, cannot be reduced to some other negative like thing, right? Like, and so people hear us talk about, so I'll explain, people, people hear us talk about Christian nationalism and what it does and how it's associated with all of these various outcomes. Yeah. And they say, isn't that really like just right-wing authoritarianism or isn't that really this thing we call social dominance orientation, or isn't this really just racism when you get down to it? Like they want to reduce it to like something that we already kind of know about. And what we were trying to argue in the book is that Christian nationalist ideology seems to have an influence on people's lives and, and views and behavior in ways that, that can't just be reduced to racism or authoritarian personalities or social dominance orientations or those kinds of things. It seems to be its own thing hmm. uh, because we try to measure and we try to account for those kinds of other things in our multivariate models and it still holds strong. So Christian nationalism seems to be its own thing. Uh, and lastly, this is what I, I pointed to earlier. Christian nationalism is not religious commitment. Uh, it's not the same thing. Okay. So what happens uh, when we... Oftentimes, when we when we're trying to isolate the influence of Christian nationalism on some kind of outcome, say like gun attitudes or racist attitudes or xenophobia or Islamophobia or something like that, oftentimes we find that once we account for Christian national, our measure of Christian nationalism, religious commitment goes in the opposite direction. So we measure religious commitment as tradition, like sociologists tend to do, with like how often somebody goes to church or prays or reads their sacred text or that kind of thing. And we find that Christian nationalism inclines Americans to more xenophobia, more racism, uh, pro-gun, pro-violence, pro-authoritarian control, that kind of thing. Religious commitment, once we account for Christian nationalism, goes in the opposite direction. It makes people less racist, or it's associated with people being less racist, less xenophobic, uh, less less like unconsciously pro-guns, you know, like that that kind of thing, less violent, less authoritarian. And so that suggests to me that like. Oftentimes the association that we find between like people who go to church more tend to be like more racially prejudiced. What we're actually seeing there is Christian nationalism. We're not actually seeing like church attendance or something like that or religious commitment. So one of the things that we try to dr drive home in the book again and again, especially in the latter chapters, hmm. is that 
Christian nationalism often goes in the complete opposite direction uh, as religious commitment when it comes to making people the kind of neighbors that you would want to be around. Uh, if you were, if you were around a bunch of people who strongly espouse Christian nationalism, that you you would find that they hold a, uh, I think a, a lot of uh, anti-social, anti-democratic uh, attitudes, or at least things that I would define that way. But uh, removing the effects of Christian nationalism, religious commitment seems to make people pretty great neighbors. You know, like they they tend to be tolerant and open kind of people. If we can hypothetically like remove the Christian nationalist element there, if that makes sense. So is what you're trying to say is that is that if you have someone who is not involved with Christian nationalism, but just religious, that tends to move them into a better direction. But once yeah, you throw you, in the religious, the Christian nationalism ideology, right. it, it begins to push them in a different direction. Is that kind of what, what you're getting at? Am, am I understanding yeah, correctly? Ex- exactly. Right, okay. right, right. So, so yeah, yeah. God, I don't cut you No, off. I think you, you, you hit it. You hit it. Okay. So, yeah, you know, one of my questions, I think, by the way, you said so many things. Every time I, I get a great guest like this audience, I feel like we could be here for hours unpacking every one of these points that you made. So sure. for sake of time and, and because of our cultural moment, I want to hit on a few things that I think are relevant to the audience and to what we're seeing and things that we talk about a lot. You know, um, it's interesting because I think I think in the book you 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 have four different types of people or, or categories that that you put people in right like resistors accommodators is that correct can, can you kind of break yeah, those down so, so moving from left to right or like people who strongly reject Christian nationalism to people who strongly embrace it you've got rejectors this is just this category who completely just you know uh, uh, oppose anything having to do with the integration of church and state you've got resistors who are a little bit closer to the average and they are, you know, not as strong as rejectors and they might affirm some things like prayer in public schools or like religious symbols in public spaces, but they are very uncomfortable with the fusion of church and state and declaring the United States a Christian nation would be a no go for them. Mm -hmm. Then on the other side of the average. So this is past the average, like where most Americans are, you've got accommodators. Now this is actually the largest portion of, of, of Americans. Like this is a plurality of Americans It's about 33%. It's about a, a third, nearly a third of Americans fall into this accommodators category where they, they are uncomfortable with say like explicitly declaring, declaring the United States, a Christian nation. And yet they're, they're probably Christians and they think that religion is a good thing, right? Like, yeah. why wouldn't we want more of that? Christian values right. is a good thing. And, and, and maybe God does have some kind of plan for the United States. And, and, uh, and, you know, why wouldn't we want to put religious symbols in public space or that kind of thing? So they're more accommodating to Christian nationalism, but they're not true believers. They're uncomfortable with some parts of it. Okay. And then you've got what I would call ambassadors. Ambassadors, of, or, or this is Andrew Whitehead, my co-author, actually came up with these four categories. This is his, I think, you know, really important contribution is to try to help readers and this we've only done this for the book like we don't use this in our academic articles we did this for the book as a heuristic to help people get their minds around like the kind of people who embrace it yeah and so we 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 use those categories and i also use them on social media ambassadors that last quarter category are the the true believers these are people who score within the top 20 percent of our christian nationalism scale um so we use this heuristic really to help people get their minds around Okay, who are these people? These are just kind of different orientations to Christian nationalism. We don't use this in our academic work because it, it really is 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 more of a a move to help people like the average reader who is like not me. an academic. <laughs> yeah, right, well, yeah, so right. like we in the book, we didn't want to just keep on talking about somebody who scores a 15 on our scale. Like that isn't helpful. What right. 
better is if we say this person is a high accommodator or this person is a a a a, a solid ambassador, you know, of, of Christian nationalism, so that we can speak to that. But it's also important, and I think this is we just finished the the paperback edition or the paperback kind of uh revisions for the paperback edition of Taking America Back that'll come out late spring. And I think one of the things that we talked about in our preface of the, of the new paperback that's coming out, uh, something that if we could go back, books are not Bibles. And right. so like, they're never meant like, they're not like academic books, like are made to be improved upon. Uh, like we follow the data as far as we can right then. And we say, hopefully we're honest about the limitations that we have in our data Right. And if we and if we see something like the data have caused us to revise our thesis or to adjust something or to emphasize something more, we honestly go back and say, you know, we probably should have stressed that more. And that's fine uh, without without, you know, abandoning the core argument or the findings or anything like that. Sure. I think one of the things that we would emphasize more, we did talk about this in the book. We did at several places. Uh, and 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 so it, it's clearly laid out. And we had also published articles on this previously, but we didn't stress enough the centrality of racial identity to Christian nationalism and how that really does shape how people respond to the questions that we ask in our surveys. Um, in the book I have coming out with Philip Gorski in spring, in, in uh, April 1st, this is called The Flag and the Cross, White mm, Christian Nationalism, yes. Right to American I'm Democracy. looking forward to that. Yeah, it's going to be, you know, but but we stress the centrality of like this racial component a lot more because what we find, and again, we talk about this in the book too, but we didn't stress it enough because people kind of seize on this and really don't under, you know, sometimes they don't understand what exactly we're talking about. Um, African-Americans tend to read our questions about Christian nationalism in a way that is different than the way white Americans do. Yeah. So, so white Americans read our questions about Christian nation and Christian values and like, you know, uh, God's plan for America and that kind of thing. And they, they, they think nostalgia, they think a time where people who affirm that this is a Christian nation, people who think like the nation is for Christians like us, um, they tend to white Americans, they tend to read those questions and they think nostalgia, uh, something that is slipping away. They think they remember a time or like some mythical time where like the yeah. right people held cultural influence and power. Yeah. Black Americans don't read our questions that way. And why would they, right? Like why would right. they ever, you know, like right. that is not how they read that. They, they tend to read, they seem to uh, tend to read those kinds of questions and make those connections between America's Christian heritage in a way that like Frederick Douglass did or Martin Luther King Jr. did as, as like an accountability mm. um, as, as at the very best aspirationally, like what America has never been, like what America was supposed to be and has never lived up to that promise. And we actually find that like African-Americans sometimes who affirm our Christian nationalism measures end up being more racially progressive. Like they end up affirming like more structural explanations for inequality or, or that kind of thing. Whereas for white Americans, it goes in the complete opposite direction. Right. And, and so what I want to, I think what I want to stress there, something that we do talk about in the book, but didn't emphasize enough. And in our paperback, we really kind of talk about this more is that uh, yeah, racial identity powerfully determines how people respond to Christian nationalist indicators. Mm. So that in our book, you know, like it's a, in, in our book, we find uh, that African-Americans tend to score high on Christian on our, on our measures of Christian nationalism, right? Like, so 
that's fine, right? Like, uh, like we, we, we would expect them to, but they don't interpret those questions the ways, the way that white Americans do. Right. White Americans interpret our Christian nationalism questions and it makes them more xenophobic and isolated and paranoid and feeling persecuted and that kind of thing. African-Americans who tend to score high on Christian nationalism don't respond the same way because it doesn't make them more, uh, yeah. you know, prejudiced, xenophobic, fearful yeah. of outsiders in that kind of way. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It, it sounds like, like like the ultimate Warshak test, <laughs> you know, of like uh, people yeah. can see the same thing and have a completely different place in their mind that they go to. And that right. does make sense because I remember reading somewhere, I think it was on Twitter or whatever, you know, some of those stats and I was like, Huh, I, this isn't making sense in my mind because, and of course, you know, your experience is not gospel for everyone, but in my experience of, of dealing with many people in the in the black community, especially in the circles that I'm in, they are like, get me as far away as possible from Christian nationalism. And also, and I, 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 I guess, well, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but you know, 80% of white evangelicals voting for Trump and the, and the majority of black Americans not voting for Trump should also tell us something about like uh, how they see, at least how we define this Christian nationalism, right? Um, so right. yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah, and I saw it, like, yeah. I mean, I think, uh, and I think this is something that, I think for, for the next phase of my career is, is something that, that I want to dig into more empirically and where we're starting to like assemble experimental psychologists and researchers to really dig into this, to run experiments, to kind of like tease out the effects here. But like I, religious language, like religion in the United States, we have to acknowledge and recognize is powerfully racialized. Like when I say that word, like we, we hear Christian language through a lens that uh, is shaped by our racial experiences and identities. Yes. So white Americans do that. Black Americans do that. Latinos and Asian Americans, do that, Native Americans, you know, so like wherever you fall into the, you know, like racialized categories in the United States, these groups that we, we think none of us comes to, to religious language or religious experience neutral. We all have these kinds of like experiences and identities through which we interpret that language and Christian nationalism. I think we're seeing now is, is, is a powerful example of how two Americans, one black, one white, can read questions about America's Christian heritage and think entirely different things. Both affirm them, yes. but one thinks criticism of yes. the United States and the other one thinks, oh, we need to go back to the way it was was uh, back yeah. when it was really good, like yeah. before you know the leftists and the socialists and the infidels started to right. take it away from us, that kind of thing. Right. And so like that, I think that's something that we 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 did not stress enough in taking America back. We do in the, in the, you know, we talked about it, but it's something that we didn't hammer home right. quite as much as, uh, as looking back now, we really should have because it's just powerfully there. Yeah. That, I think that that's a fair point. So I want to move on a little bit to kind of some of our current moments. Um, you know, I've been very outspoken about Christian nationalism. I've, I've grown up in, in a form of it. You know, it's, I, I was a talk radio kid my whole life, Sean Hannity, Rush Limbaugh, Mark Levin, Michael Savage. I mean, I can go down the list, you know, and I still tune into my, my local AM station every now and then to hear how they're talking about things just so I can kind of keep in the loop. Right. Me too, yeah. um, you, you know, I, I know the, book isn't that old or that, 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 that you guys released. It really isn't. But 
one of my questions is, are, are you seeing Christian nationalism growing um, on like a statistical level? Because experientially, I feel like it is. One of my case in points is is Turning Point Faith, launched by Charlie Kirk. You know, this seems like, like it's a real direct um, launch of Charlie Kirk and his Turning Point movement, right, which I think is steeped in Christian nationalism. Um, oh, sure. and, and now now starting to court churches, large ones. I mean, Jack Hibbs of Calvary, uh, Chino Hill, 7,000 members strong, Dream City Church in Arizona, 25,000 members strong. Um, and, and I'm seeing Candace Owens speaking at churches like like, like Awaken Church in, in California. Um, so it seems like even though I think statistically these ambassadors are maybe not the dominant force in American culture, they it seems like, like they are growing, though, even after, you know, we had four years of Trump, even after the insurrection. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, yeah, a couple of things. So, uh, um, one statistically, and, and I talk about this in a recent time op-ed we published yesterday and mm-hmm. I pointed to some sources there. I think data from the Baylor religion surveys, Pew and the public religion research Institute seem to consistently show us and the general social surveys are consistently showing us that Christian nationalism on the whole, like in the general population is slowly declining. Okay. Uh, and, and, and that is to be expected because, like, demography is working its magic. Older Americans who who strongly affirm these kinds of things are, are dying off and being replaced by younger generations who are not quite as comfortable with this. Um, and, and America is in some ways secularizing in, 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 a, in a gradual you know, process. Hmm. Uh, but, but I will say this. There are three factors that are going on that I think elevate the prominence of Christian nationalism right now. One of them is... is uh, I think a positive form of confirmation bias that like now that we have now that we have drawn attention to this, that like a lot of people are talking about Christian nationalism, we're seeing it everywhere. <laughs> like we're we're starting to recognize it when we see it, whereas before we might have just thought that was just your average evangelical kind of experience in church. Right. Mm-hmm. Like and, and now we have the language and the tools, I think, to to identify that when we see it and be like, mm, mm-hmm. that's, you know, I'm uncomfortable with that. You know, like uh, I remember in college. Uh, I went to, a, we were part of a, you know, a summer beach project uh, kind of event in Daytona Beach where we went down with this college ministry and we were going to this like, you know, SBC, like large mega, like First Baptist kind of, uh, you know, Daytona Beach kind of thing. And, uh, and they had this, we were down there for the summer. Of course, they had this like 4th of July celebration and they had, you know, like all of the things that we recognize now as maybe problematic, you know, uh, conflations of like America's heritage with, uh, with Christian uh, identity. And I remember in college just thinking that like, that was the funnest thing ever. Like, was, there was fireworks and this was cool and like, how great, you know? And right. I think I think now that we've actually been having these conversations, I think Kristen Dumay is talking about Christian mm-hmm. nationalism, writes about it in our book. And we're talking about Christian nationalism. Jamar Tisby is talking about Christian nationalism and highlighting it as this thread. People with, you know, some actual influence and some say. Yeah. Are, are giving people the tools and the language to recognize it when they see it, to, to develop concepts to say, no, I think that's too far and we need to have a conversation about that. Uh, I think that is giving us the perception that like, wow, this is everywhere now, whereas it had always been there. The, the other two things I will say is, is even though the numbers of people who subscribe to or affirm Christian nationalist ideology are diminishing slightly, that does not mean that they are not unifying yes. and... Uh, and uh, not only not only unifying but radicalizing. 
That was one of my questions. At, at the Capitol, right? So <laughs> I like was going to ask, is it more militant now, though? <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. For sure. Okay, so this is this is where we're getting into this other part that I think is really important to talk about. Let's do it. Um, so you have you you have as as groups feel more like, and this is actually the 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 as these numbers diminish, like as yeah. nationalism and the general population declines, these groups start to feel more isolated, yeah. uh, more like minority status, more persecuted. Yes. And with that comes a reaction that is desperate. That is like, oh gosh, we, we need to get serious. When you're the dominant group, you can kind of just, you know, play around with it. You like, you don't really have to take it, take threats as seriously. But when you become, when your minority status starts to register to you and, and starts to become obvious and you are obviously like marginalized in terms of like cultural, what is acceptable now to, to, to say and do, you've got a bunch of people who say, what happened to my country? I'm so mad about this. Yeah. And income politicians who are smart enough to say, don't you feel like you're persecuted? Don't you right. feel like you're being taken, you know, like your country is being taken from you mm. and we're going to bring it out. Like Donald Trump verbatim, verbatim on his, on the 2016 campaign trail says, by the way, you know, he talks about Merry Christmas and how oh, nobody's yeah. saying Merry Christmas again, which is such garbage. But like, I know. that's and that's a trope. I have like, where is Gibson's book? Like there, you know, I have a Gibson a book by a guy named Gibson on my shelf who in 2005 was writing about like the left war on Christmas. And like, you know, this is like a this ancient decade. Totally, totally. Bill O'Reilly. Um, I mean, it, it's been yeah, there, you know. Yeah. Right. So like Donald Trump talks about like war on Christmas and I'm going to make it to you say Merry Christmas. And he says to his audience. By the way, if I get elected, Christianity will have power. You don't need anybody else because I will, you know, Christianity has so much power. And uh, I, he's, I mean, shocking. There was a time where like politicians referenced religious language as kind of a unifying thing. They would yeah. talk about American ideals. And that's really more of like a civil religion kind of move, like not Christian nationalism. Donald Trump explicitly says, like, totally. no, I will fight for you and your people, and I'm going to give you that back. And so you've got these really desperate folks who feel like, you know, my, our future as a, as a nation and our, our own like future as a group are tied to the hopes of like this guy who will fight for us. And so that's why they're, why they're willing to overlook any flaw or anything that he's done to say like, hey, Donald Trump's great. He's awesome. He's, he's our guy. Yeah, I, I think you're spot on, man. There's so many layers to this. I, I want to hit on two points, and we can kind of maybe unpack these a little bit further um, after yeah. I, I present them. I think first thing, and I say this all the time whenever I talk to people in in this world, I think many people underestimate the power of the talk radio world, of the right-wing conservative media world. They don't realize how influential that world has been on so many evangelicals. You know, yeah. what I tell a lot of pastors whenever I talk to them is I say, I hate to break it to you, but your congregation is most likely a better disciple of, of Sean Hannity and Tucker Carlson than they are of Jesus. And you have to understand that. Like that that's who's in the ear of so many evangelicals, specifically white evangelicals. And I, I think that, that that's important to recognize. And the other thing I, other thing I want to say is that, and I, maybe it's because... I'm I'm a little bit older now and I, I didn't see it earlier, but but it does seem like one thing that that, that Trump did um, very well and and kind of brought out of the woodwork, maybe it was in the heart, but now it was explicit, was he really talked to the charismatic section 
um, yeah. of evangelicals and and this idea of, of of dominionism. You know that 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 as evangelicals we have to take over all parts of the world or, or, or all parts of society. And I think about Bill Johnson, Bethel. Right? These are people who I I've as a musician I've played their songs. I followed them for a long time. All of a sudden I'm seeing Bill Johnson go on to some crazy talk show saying yes the election was definitely fraudulent 100% in his own words. And you're like wait what is he talking about? And it really exposed a lot of these worship leaders. I mean Kim Walker Smith, Sean Foy. Um, Carrie Job, they 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 are all you know proponents of this this, this Trump era we can call it Christian nationalism, and I think that's why a lot of us feel like whoa is this is this growing because maybe we didn't know that our favorite worship leader had had, had these sentiments right. and now they're just publicly and proudly like you said because maybe we're shrinking we have to plant the flag now and fight right. the war. Yeah, right, and and you do have like I think. Uh, a movement among like really the far right dominionist kind of like folks like who are into like Catholic integralism or, or they are into uh, I, I think a, a very, to, in my I mean, they'll, they'll outright say religious nationalism is the way to go, or they'll call it cultural nationalism and, yeah, and yeah. you know, and, and it won't sound so ugly, but I think they're embracing this identity of like, no, that's exactly what we want. Like we want, <laughs> we want uh, you know, the nation for the nation should be, I mean, Robert Jeffers, like back in 2016, oh, yeah. I have his, his book, uh, Twilight's last gleaming, um, where he's kind of, you know, he's making this argument for like, Hey, this is our last chance. And, of you know, course. of course, and, and he's, he just straight up says like uh. America has always privileged Christianity. And even though the first amendment says like Congress shall make no law, of course you, you have this move where they say like, what they meant was like sects of Christian, but of course they were going to privilege Christianity and that kind of thing. And so he, he just says straight up, like the government ought to privilege Christianity over other religions and we'll tolerate Muslims and they're welcome to be here. And atheists are welcome to be here. They might even get saved by being here, but like we are going to, as a nation privilege Christianity, which is unconstitutional and, you know, and, 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 you know, you can't, can't do, but this is the kind of thing that they're going for. So I think you have, as this group recognizes minority status and they, they recognize that like, Hey, we're, you know, we're going to lose, we're, we're losing the population. Uh, their views are becoming less and less uh, popular. Uh, uh, Republicans haven't won a, a, a popular vote. Uh, they've won the popular vote once in 2004 uh, since, since Bush, George W, the first George W. Bush. So like 1988. So since 1988, Republicans have won, one popular vote for president. So like they're, they, they don't stand a chance unless they are able to mobilize. And this is where I think it gets into what I'm talking about today. Um, uh, I've got a, a op-ed coming out in religious news service where we show Christian nationalism is really strongly associated with wanting to restrict voter access yes. uh, to, yes. to other Americans. And actually I, I bring up some new data in this op-ed, but what I'm, what I'm, what I find in, in these surveys that we've distributed is Christian nationalism uh, strongly predicts that Americans view voting as a privilege rather than a right. So it's, it's something that you can like extend and take away rather than something that shall not be infringed. Right. It's like, so, uh, you see something that it can be meddled with, but also Christian nationalism is strongly associated with somebody's support for the electoral college, uh, somebody's unwillingness to address ger gerrymandering. Yeah. Uh, why? Well, because those, those two things actually really benefit right. white, white rural conservative Americans and allow them to hold some kind of power and stay in office. And yeah. so you, you, I think more and more, it becomes clear that Christian nationalist ideology, especially when it is held by white Americans uh, is, is really strongly into what I, what 
political scientist Eric Kaufman calls ethno-traditionalism. That is this, uh, like, we, we need to go back to a time where people like us, uh, Christian, yes, but Christian almost in an ethnic sense, like Christian in a, in a white middle-class totally. ideological kind of thing, right. where people like us had power, and we need to make sure that we institutionalize that power, because we're going to miss our chance. I mean, that's why you see these desperate grabs now is like, we're going to miss our window. Totally. Uh, and, uh, and so we got to go after it now. And I'll say the quiet part out loud. This is steeped in white supremacy culture. That's what this is. Sure. You know, I mean, you read the history of the time back then and it was, we want segregation. We want the races to stay separate. We want Jim Crow. I mean, that's what we're talking about. The history right. has the receipts, you know, right. and, 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 and maybe they, maybe it's out of vogue or it's not popular to say that now, but that's what they're hinting at, which is so, you know, it's amazing. The more you read, and again, I, I, I like to stress, I am not an academic. I just read books. And when you start reading history books, you start seeing, oh my God, it's the same language then use now. Spring is basically a second holiday season. Mother's Day, Father's Day, weddings, the list goes on. And what better way to celebrate them than with Drizzly, the go-to app for alcohol delivery. Drizzly is the easiest way to shop local stores and compare prices on a huge selection of beer, wine, and spirits, then get them delivered to your door. Download the app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com today. Must be 21 plus. Not available in all locations. Attention shoppers, we now have taste in the bread aisle. Dave's Killer Bread. That's right, an organic bread that's no longer a sedative for your taste buds. Dave's Killer Bread is on a mission to make the most of the loaf, to rid the world of GMOs, high fructose corn syrup, and artificial ingredients, and plant the seeds of good in all that they bake. Killer taste, killer texture, and always organic. Dave's Killer Bread. Bread amplified. You know, colorblindness was 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 the the method yeah. to, to to not say segregation out loud because it wasn't popular, but still have the same results. And it's it's right. the same kind of thing now. Um, you and, know, and I think it's like you. Yeah. It's, it's like yeah. I mean, you, with your language, you're almost referencing Hawkins' uh, recent book. You know, uh, the Bible told them told, told them so. You mean this one? Uh, and it's, uh, it's uh, <laughs> that's right. I mean, in, in my mind, it's 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 one of my top right. four of the year. I mean, it's like it was a paradigm like just shifting. As somebody who studies this stuff, I'm looking at this and it's just like receipts for days right and right. all of this language like he draws this really clear line between segregation theology of the past and the colorblindness that we see is really like front and center right now right i mean i, I highlighted almost the whole book I'm like highlight yeah, highlight yeah. highlight um yeah. one thing i wanted to bring up uh, let's go back to robert jeffries for a minute because I think one of the other reasons why a lot of us think, even though, like you said, maybe it's declining, why we think it's either growing or whatever, is because even if it isn't the popular thing, it has a lot of power and a lot of money behind it. Robert Jeffries, right, pastor of the largest church in Dallas, or I'm sorry, uh, in Texas, and one of the largest churches in the U.S. I mean, this is someone who has a lot of power, a lot of influence, had the ear of the president, now, you know, writing the hymn, Make America Great Again. And, And I think what is frustrating, so let me speak, hopefully, on behalf of some of the audience here. I think what is frustrating to a lot of us who grew up in these spaces, we know this world, which is why I think people who who don't like us are so frustrated because we can speak their language and say, ah, we've been there, right? right? But why we're so frustrated is because we keep asking ourselves, what will it take for these kinds of people to be held accountable by their own constituents, by these pastors who claim to love the Lord, who claim to want freedom for all? How come Robert Jeffries can be the pastor, have Donald Trump there? I watched, the, I watched his speech 
speech. I watched Robert Jeffrey say, this is my good friend. It's been, it's, it's been one of the privileges and honors of my entire life to call Donald Trump friend. And you go, how is this guy a pastor, <laughs> right? Yeah. And, and, and there's no accountability. Meanwhile, many yeah. in certain circles, which we will not name, are too busy talking about critical race theory and frankly, writing horrible, almost Fox News level books called Fault Lines that take off and are, are I'm going to call it out. You don't have to do anything. I'll say it. I'll be the bad guy here. But honestly, like it's, it's very frustrating to see, okay, the evangelical machine, once again, even if they're not all complicit in Christian nationalism directly, have no problem letting it seem to breed inside of its own church and, and, and really not mention much. But when it comes to the out the perceived outside threat, you know, the critical race theory, the liberals, the socialism, the transgender, this, that, that, you know, oh, we have to talk about it. We have to talk about it. I think that's why so many of us are A, really frustrated and, and angry about this, but B, think like, are we sure it's not growing? <laughs> because I would think, you know, but but like you said, statistically, we, we want to go with the data. You know, it is shrinking, but like you said, they're planting the flag and it really seems like it's growing. That that That's at least the perception. Right. Unifying and radicalizing. Yeah. And I think like yeah. what, what you, and, and when your group re- diminishes in power and influence, you are you make a strategic move and you make strategic decisions to include people that you formerly wouldn't have included because they will yes. be, they will give you political leverage. So for example, like evangelicals developing coalitions with white Roman Catholics who 20 years ago, they would have called cult members like Jeffers. If you go look at Jeffers's like yes. uh, stuff, like Jeffers is, is, is on record. Like, you know, like he would have called Mormonism a cult. He would have called Roman Catholicism a cult. And it would have been so ugly about it. But like now that he recognizes like, nah, you actually kind of need, you know, cons- white, like conservative Roman Catholics and, and Mormons who by and large vote Republican. You need these people to kind of back in. And by the way, Mormons like have a whole theology around like mm. Christian nationalism. That is that is uh, in, in many ways different, but in some ways still the same about, you know, like as as what we see in kind of white evangelical spaces. But um you have groups who are are more or, or even like freaking James Lindsay. I was just right? going to say or, that. Can we say or, James I mean, Lindsay? Can we, can we talk Jordan about Peterson. that? Like, yeah, that we we we'll, we'll we'll platform atheists. Like, it doesn't totally. matter as long as you're on our political and cultural team. Yes, we will. We will lift Ben Shapiro or or, oh or uh, God, Matt, Matt Walsh. Right, like you will people that would not be comfortable in evangelical theological conversations are nonetheless welcome to the table because this group recognizes that like, hey, we're under attack, we're persecuted, we need to, you know, open the circle to allow these kinds of people who are on our team in yeah. while we're trying to draw the hard boundary around, you know, critical race theory or like gender egalitarianism or, right. or that kind of that kind of thing. Okay, I want to riff off of this because we're in the moment. Um, do I have the book in front of me? Uh, I don't. I just read the book and interviewed George Yancey, um, One Faith No More. Okay. Yeah. Uh, really good book, really informative, interesting though. And and one of the things I questioned him about was I said, your data is from 2012. And one of his his major um, premises of the book is that essentially progressive Christians, how he defines them, are more politically centered. That's that's kind of their unity. And and conservative Christians are more theologically centered. Like like what, what matters the most is right belief over everything. And one okay. of my questions to him was I said, hey, listen, I know that the, that the data is from 2012. I understand that. Do you 
you think, though, that that has changed since 2016? Because I've noticed you have the Kenneth Copelands of the world and the James Whites of the world unified on anti-vaccine measures. I'm noticing James Lindsay now being welcomed into some really intense reform circles and he is no he's no charmer that guy i mean his twitter is like it's abysmal it's it's horrible yeah. but he's, he's welcomed into the circle even quoted by Vody bakum right in fault lines I, I read the book he quotes james Lindsay several times so i think we are seeing a shift as well from having from from needing to have the right theology as central to what a lot of maybe for lack of a, of a better term conservative evangelicals might 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 have once held to now like you said realizing well if if our power is starting to fade if we're not popular perhaps we have to start making new alliances and start rethinking what some of our core convictions are and they're they're turning into i would argue some dangerous you know um um, um values that are really i i don't want to use progressive talking points that isn't that is not my point but a lot of them tend to be not with the science on on covid deaths until it's convenient you know case in point the omicron variant all of a sudden these people who will tell us no no the cdc overinflates deaths we can't trust the data oh look guys the omicron's less deadly there's your proof it's like uh-huh convenient so so when you see that happening i think we're starting to see a uh, see a shift honestly from from what was maybe once held as yes right belief is central uh, theologically to now well we need that political power. So who can we start bringing in to, to kind of keep that power? Right. Sure. And, you know, I, I think, and how did he respond to that, by the way? I'm, I'm kind of curious. He to, conceded to the point. <laughs> okay. Uh, okay. That it might be the case. We, so, we, we had a great, the interview isn't out yet. Yeah. It will be out, but he, it was, it was great, but he, he understood that point with what he said. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I do want to, I do want to say like, I, I love George. Uh, George is, uh, he was actually my first mentor in sociology. Like I, wow. I spent the year at the university of North Texas where George was at the time. And, so learned a lot from George and I always will uh, appreciate George's work and call him a friend. Yeah. Um, I, I, I do think uh, what I would, how I would respond to the the claim also like the 2012 data point is, is crucial. There were 10 years after that. And I think things have changed. I think what we're witnessing is a, is a Europeanization of Christian nationalism where like mm. in Europe uh, the churches are empty and nobody cares about religion. And yet you do have this kind of Christian nationalist movement, but it's obviously ethnic. Like uh. when they say, Hey, this nation is for Christians. They just, they obviously mean not Muslims, right? Like they, they just mean right. it's for people who were born here, right. people who are like, like us culturally, you know? And, uh, and I think in the United States, we're moving towards that on the right. Like it's, it, it used to be cloaked in this evangelical language of like biblical theology and whatever. Yes. Uh, but it's, now yes. it's like with Trump, it's just obviously not about that. It's so, it's cl- so clearly like, so, let's, right. let's, you know, like, unless you're going to just gaslight me in, into the, into the grave, like, I, I don't know right. what, uh, I don't know how to, how to deal with like you, you making that claim. And this would be the second point. Not only, I think, are we seeing a transition as you, as you think aptly pointed out, um, you fall prey to when you when you when when you exclusively take people's words on surveys for like I use surveys and I use interviews and like we we leverage those kinds of things and I think they're really important. You also you don't want to fall prey to what we call the religious congruence fallacy and that is the idea that that people say and what they affirm that they believe always matches up with their behavior uh-huh. um, because people actually happen to be quite good at knowing how I'm supposed to respond to these things on surveys because of like cultural scripts, uh, which is one of the reasons like church attendance data 
Like there have been study after study after study showing that like church attendance data really isn't reliable. Like if we know, if we want to know how many people on average attend church in America on a given Sunday, yeah, we actually had like, that's, that's problematic because like a lot of people, they read a, a question about church attendance right? and, and they answer with their identity. They don't answer with like whether they actually attend church that often. So mm. when they see a question that asks, how often do you attend church? Never several times a year, right. uh, you know, every once a, several times a month, <laughs> weekly, right. what they do is they answer, they say, I am a religious person and I would like to like, and so even though they don't attend church weekly, really right. like they go fishing, they go right. on vacation, they do all these things. They still answer weekly because they're answering with their, with their identity. Does that make sense? Yes, because like, the, 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 I'm sorry to cut you off there, Sam, uh, the Barna okay. group in their book on Christian, uh, did, did, proved this point through some of their research where they said that, 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 that most Christians claim to have made a personal commitment to Jesus. I think it was like 75% of Americans, but when right. they, when they, when they defined a biblical worldview, which was super vague, I mean, Mormons would agree with, with, with the worldview, it was like 6%, you know, and, and they were highlighting the, the massive disparity between, yeah, I'm a Christian versus actually my beliefs don't even they're not even close right right and yeah. so I, I would i would say that like you know the the people that i think george is interviewing that he would say like really base their views on like the bible or theology or that kind of thing like i, I think oftentimes people answer those kinds of surveys with their identities right like they yeah. they, they say am i the kind of person uh are am, am i supposed to say <laughs> that like the bible is my ultimate authority yes i'm right. to say that even when their behavior politically or socially, uh, you know, I guarantee almost all of those people, for example, probably indicate that like, I'm supposed to share the gospel with my neighbors. I'm supposed to love them and serve them. Then you have to ask them a question. Well, like how often do you actually share the gospel with your neighbors? That kind right. of, that kind of thing. Right. And I would bet there would be a huge disparity between the belief that they report on a survey and the behavior that they exhibit in their lives. And I think yeah. that is kind of how I would, I would respond to that. Like I, 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 I'm not trying to negate George's point. I, I think it's a, a fair point that like people who are more progressive Christians may actually be in some ways be integrating politics and these kinds of things, or at least they're more aware of the fact that all of us do that. Yeah, right. And people on the right are not supposed to say that. The people on the right are supposed to say Bible alone, faith alone, Christ alone. Uh, and so on a survey, of course, you're going to get a bunch of people who say, no. Politics isn't really an issue, even sure. even though they'll vote for the devil if 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 if, if it means uh, staying in some kind of like you know preserving cultural or political power. Yeah, well, let's move on to the insurrection. You know, we're recording okay. this on January fifth. Um, it were uh, twenty twenty two. It's been one year since the insurrection happened. Um, I my. I mean, full transparency, my dad was at the insurrection. I don't think he was part of any of the violence, but he was at the protests. He was at seeing Trump speak, and he was in Washington when it all went down. Um, You know, so I this one hits home for me for sure. And I remember watching a year ago, New Evangelicals just started on social media, so we were still pretty new. I was just glued to my computer that whole day. You know, especially when I saw the Christian flag in the Capitol building, we saw the prayer to Jesus. I mean, you know, you, you and I both know that it was riddled with 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 some form of Christian language. You know, I, I think that um, is it. There's an article that, or some kind of thing that came out recently with Christian Dumay who contributed to it, kind of explaining how like it was religious but like not religious at the same time. You know, but but we we saw so many just symbols, right? Of Jesus and Christian and all that stuff. 
And then a year later, and even, well, I should back up. Even when, when, when that all happened, you know, a lot of evangelical leaders decried the violence as they should, but they really weren't willing to talk about the symbolism there uh, and really admit like, Houston, we have a problem. I ended up interviewing Samuel Duth, who is the pastor at Awaken Church, uh, a very far right Christian nationalist, you know, they're fighting in San Diego to, to stop masking. They're on that, they're on that kind of wavelength here. I had Candace Owen speak. And I asked him about it. It was, this was like a few months after I said, you know, so the insurrection, man, I said, as a pastor, wouldn't it make you furious to see our sacred savior's name and, and, our, and the sacred tradition of the Christian faith being used for violence? And he really kind of like, he, he, he didn't say no, but he didn't say yes either. He was just kind of like, yeah, it was a few people doing some, some, some dumb things. And then he kind of hinted at, you know, Antifa. He hinted that, you know, maybe it was rigged. Oh he really did. Yeah. He hinted at it. He was like, you know, we know that there were some bad actors there kind of thing. And, and we know Thanks to video footage, who was really there. And so, you know, I see that and I go, wow. And and now what I'm seeing coming up on the one-year anniversary is the right-wing political, um, either um, political movement or the right-wing um, pundits doing what they do and beginning to minimize that January 6th was not that big of a deal or it was, and Candace Owens is saying how it was the FBI. You know, it, it's a complete discredit campaign. <laughs> You know, one year out from the insurrection, what do you think, what have you learned, you know, since that day in your own you know, work? And where do you think we're headed? Are, are we going to have more Christian violence, well, Christian nationalist violence, in, right. in your opinion? Because I'm afraid that we're going to. Yeah. Um, you know, I think I think like like many, I think uh, like I, I watched that. Uh, we watched all the footage and I was on I'm on this tech cha- text chain with other co-authors and scholars that we we write with, and we were just going back and forth. Like, can you guys, I, I can't believe this is a, this is going to be like a nine 11 kind of thing where we are going to be talking about what we were doing right now for the rest of our lives. I mean, yeah. we were just glued exactly. to the TV and, and, and exactly. I can't, I mean, I'm watching, you know, I'm, I'm looking at that scene where you've got secret service people pointing guns at the door, like and they're and they're there. And, and I'm thinking the next thing I see is I'm going to see bodies drop and I'm going to see people like ripped apart, right? Like yeah. in some kind of like a uh, riot. And then you saw all this footage that came around afterwards and you saw the, the uh, you know, yeah. and um, I, I think uh, looking, looking back, the first thing I was, I was disgusted by was uh, what, what I think you're pointing to, which is this kind of dismissal or, uh, or, or, or quickly acknowledging. So Al Mohler did this like Al Mohler, a couple, you know, very quickly afterwards denounces like, Hey, this is a horrible thing that happened. Yep. Uh, and yes, we have to acknowledge that there were some like Christian, you know, obviously this is a really bad thing and Christian nationalism may actually be kind of a thing, but he immediately uh, talks about it as like fringe. Like these aren't just the people, you know, that are sitting next to you in church. Right. And then it comes out, these actually are the people sitting next to you in church. Yep. Uh, you know, they traced back like where these people are going from. They're all come from like mainstream, like mega church, you know, like in North Texas. And, Samuel Duth, that pastor was there at the insurrection. I mean, there's a case in I mean, point. He yeah, pastors like, a church. Is, <laughs> right. These are not. I, and I think it's really unfortunate as, as comical. And, you know, we and I say that, you know, not, not understanding the seriousness and the gravity of the situation. As yeah. comical as like the guy with the horns and the fur who's like pictures of like shouting and that kind of thing. As comical as that image is like. Yeah. I regret that that is like been foregrounded so often because it makes these people all look like wackos and not just yeah. your average guy who really was sitting next to you in church the week before, mm-hmm. um, who had just been radicalized and who had been caught up in a mob and had been given misinformation by Trump about a stolen election and has really bought it. 
And so, you know, I, I think the potential is there. I think that, I think what you need, and, and I think something that lit the flame right there, and this is why Trump ought to be hold ac- held accountable, is really didn't, he did, he did incite uh, yeah. mob violence, right? Like, and so would all of those people have stormed the Capitol, like physically had, had they not been at that rally where he basically said, let's go, right? Fight like hell. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, I think that's what that sparked this kind of like thing and people do crazy things in mobs. And so like with this underlying ideology, I mean, I think white Christian nationalism is very much present and pervasive there. Sure. It was like a very radicalized instantiation of like Christian nationalism. I'm not saying like the average guy who sits next to you and kind of like espouses like a God in country, Christian nationalism is ready to storm the Capitol and start burning thing, you know, like that's not true. But when you combine Christian nationalist ideology with this, with misinformation, totally with siloed, completely siloed and isolated, like social networks where you really don't have friends that are different from you or think anything different from you or would question like, Hey, I don't sure. I'm not sure you have all the facts about the election or COVID. Or it sounds like you're listening to some people who are spinning conspiracy theories and that's all been debunked. When you no longer hear those voices and all of you here are angry pundits and representatives and surrogates of Trump or Trump himself saying, we're going to fight and do this, then I think the potential is is very much there. Um, I'm shocked. I think, I mean, I, I'm in a state of disbelief that um, the right uh, uh, and and not not everybody on the right, but the, yep. the right kind of machine, I think yep. now can gaslight so thoroughly to where they can just basically see what you're seeing right now. That's not what you saw. Like that's not, you know, that didn't happen. I mean, that, that goes back. If you ever read a a great book and I'm uh, I'll, I'll recommend this to you. I'll just show it uh, on uh, I'll show it on, on Libby, but this is uh, this is called the road to unfreedom by Timothy Mm -hmm. Snyder. Okay. Uh, Timothy Snyder, an eminent historian at Yale and, and, uh, and has written some really powerful books, but this is called the road to unfreedom. And, uh, and he, I mean, he, he has all the receipts. I mean, like, he just talks about like how, how, how we have like Russia owned Trump. Uh, like they invested all this money in his businesses. These oligarchs like really like used him like a, like a puppet, but more importantly, like we as United States have really embraced on the right, have really embraced a Putin style, uh, form of like missing, like massive misinformation kind of thing to where like in 2013, Putin takes tanks into the Ukraine. It's all on TV, right? Like everybody, like you're, you're looking at footage of like tanks going into the Ukraine as they're invading. And Putin just goes and says, nah, that's not it. That's not what you're saying. That's not going on right now. And that I feel like is that that's that it's that level kind of thing going on. Like where I can, I can watch video footage of these people doing this and they'll just deny, deny, deny. Right. And and, and, at a scary level. And I think that kind of what happens in that situation is 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 how democracies fail honestly it's 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 nobody can trust anything anymore because you question your own reality like what am i right. seeing like right. you you and and you you no longer trust the media you no longer trust experts you no longer trust data it's all and you just go with whatever makes your group seem like the good guys yeah um yeah. and you fight for you fight for people who back your tribe, like group psychology kicks in and everybody gets blinded completely by it. Um, if you haven't read Jonathan Heights, the righteous mind, I mean, I think that is like people have done previous or, you know, work since then, but the righteous mind came out in 2012. Okay. Why good people are divided by, you know, politics and religion. Sweet. And he talks about like the psychology behind all of this, like why we, 
why we are completely unwilling to acknowledge that people outside of our group have any facts worth listening to anymore and why they're evil and stupid uh, and, and, and don't really have a right to like the same kind of like influence that I do. I mean, it's, it's, it's scary. So I, I get with the misinformation thing, especially I get a little bit discouraged because I'm not sure how you combat that. Yeah. uh, uh, That one, you know, I think what is tough with that is that a, a common rebuttal I hear a lot in the circles I'm in from people who don't like our my account or things that we talk about is, oh, the other side, the other side, the, you know, Antifa, the progressives. And I'm like, listen, I hear you. And I would agree, by the way, I'm not a fan of Joe Biden's presidency so far. I think he's mishandled a lot of things. I, I think he's, you know, the, the whole the, the drone strikes overseas and no responsibility. Right. For, I mean, it's horrible. No doubt about that, you know. But well, at what point do we recognize that that specifically Trump and Trumpism is a whole different breed? of just, you know, I mean, Kellyanne Conway right. coined the term alternative facts on national right. television, right? Oh You're gosh, like, right. wait, what? that is like, and I don't want to use this word too much, but that's like some fascism playbook well, level stuff. Propaganda, you know? yeah, it's fascist in, propaganda. Yeah, in the book, sure. uh, How Fascism Works, I'm forgetting the author's name, you know, he- Jason he, Stanley. Yeah, yeah. you read yeah. that book and you're like, what oh. What was 2016 through 2020? I mean, I yeah. hate to say it. And then when you see, again, the connection between, um, and we're watching this with the January 6th commission, unearthing these text messages, right, between Sean Hannity and Mark Meadows, right? right? And so Sean Hannity, behind the scenes, please tell the president to stop this, meaning he has the power to stop it. But publicly, the evil Dems are trying to put this on the president. I mean, that that's what's happening here. It is blatant. I mean, so blatant, right? right? Which is ironic, because they're the people who always accuse Democrats of having the state-run TV, you know, but here's Sean Hannity, you know, a, a, a well, um, really a media personality disguised right. as, as doing objective journalism that people believe, you know, in bed with Trump, uh, having his number and steering the conversation. And I think the other thing that that, that, that concerns me is, and I, I talked to someone about this who deals in politics, I said, hey, um, I know that, that Trump still gives statements as the president, it says president, you know, 45th president of the United States, Donald Trump. Then there's some kind of statement. I said, has any other president in the history of the U.S. ever done that? And they said, no, this has never happened before. The fact that that a former president is still releasing statements that did, that 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 say, you know, 45th president of the United States, meaning like 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 almost kind of a hint of like still president, right? Still president, right. Yeah, right? And people and people listen to that and they they internalize it. That that worries me that that we have someone doing this and that it goes largely untalked about or critiqued. Well, and what he's and what he's saying, right? Like, you know, like he just he just endorsed Victor Orban the other day. Like that's like a a, a notorious like fascist, you know, like fascist, like authoritarian, anti-democratic leader. And so, I mean, he's uh, like, I assume he's eventually going to go down the list of like all of these uh, autocrats, you know, on all of these nations and, uh, right. And, and, and because like, you know, I think uh, a great book that I would, another one that I would recommend is twilight of democracy by mm. Anne Applebaum. It's a really short read. It's a good. Listen, great. Uh, she has this, uh, she had a recent article out in the Atlantic, uh, called like, uh, how the autocrats are winning or something like that, which I think condensed form of that. But she basically just says like, she makes this really important argument that, uh, the game, the game plan for dealing with autocrats like we used to, like government sanctions and how we just kind of like dem- dem- democratic societies involved in the United Nations or whatever, we would just box out these like autocrats and we would punish them by saying like, 
hey, we're going to have all of these sanctions and we're going to, you know, you know, hurt your economies and we're going to kind of do these sternly worded kind of things. Right. Well, now that there's enough of these autocratic societies, they're starting to team up, even though they don't even like like each other or, you know, or or trust one another. They all recognize like, hey, we're kind of all going by this, you know, like Putin and Bolsonaro and like, you know, Victor Orban or whatever. They're all they're all kind of gang or, you know, uh, leaders in China. They're all trying to they're all starting to help each other out in ways that like the old playbook for like dealing with these kind of autocratic leaders is no longer helping because they know how to weasel out of like getting punished this way. They just hook each other up with like opportunities and business and that kind of thing. And so as, as Trump aligns himself with these autocratic leaders and gets in bed with, I think more and more of them, uh, it becomes more difficult to pick and choose for him who he's going to help out and side with, Hmm. uh, and uh, and it and it puts us as a country, I think, in, in line with a lot of really problematic uh, people and maybe as a power, maybe as a way to hold on to our like global power status to make America great again or to, to make us this kind of like world superpower uh, that we he feels like or they feel like or whoever uh, that we are kind of allowing to slip away. Yeah. So, you know, I, I, I do think I do see glimmers of hope. I do think like Christian nationalism is statistically declining. And I think that's good. I think it'll continue to do that. Yeah. Uh, even though we do see the radicalization and the isolation, the kind of like unifying kind of moves going on. Um, and I also I like I, I've been reading studies later, later lately on like deplatforming and what that accomplishes. Hmm. And I posted some studies the other day on yeah. like Twitter. And and the consensus seems to be like it doesn't solve the problem completely, but like deplatforming de- people who spread misinformation, like uh, like Trump or Marjorie Taylor. Marjorie, Green, I was say Marjorie Taylor, yeah. Uh, it actually works. Like they don't they don't just pop over to some other mm. uh, media site and immediately get ninety million followers. Like it mm. doesn't work that way, and so right. it actually limits the reach of their misinformation to be able to do that. And I know there's problematic aspects of, of doing that with everybody because of freedom of speech, but like, it's also people's lives are on the line and I don't know what, uh, yeah. I mean, even during COVID, I remember the, the YouTube documentary Plandemic came out, you know, and, and it's like, you see this and you're like, this is, this is, you're really testing the bounds of free speech in the way of like, of, of, of the harm that this kind of misinformation directly yeah. causes, right? Like right. when people are taking ivermectin and dying from it, right? Cause they read on some, on some underground channel or on, um, what's it called? The um, Telegram app, you know, it's like, uh, okay, like what do we do with this, right? Like, how do we handle that? So let me ask you this as we get ready to wrap up. And I, again, I appreciate you making time um, so short, uh, short, so short notice. But um, how do we, how do we engage this in a way that does not make us the opposite fundamentalist that we're not trying to be? You know, like I tell my audience a lot, like it's really easy to go from one fundamentalism to the other, um, and 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 certainly we want to we we want to be for people and for equity and for liberation. Like certainly we have that 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 perspective and that we we want to land there. But how do we handle these people who? Um, are, are hard to handle, frankly, online and in, 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 in the Twitter sphere and, and on social media. How do we resist Christian nationalism well in, in your perspective? Yeah, I think we I, I think we recruit uh, other Americans and including like committed Christians uh, to uh, what I what I think are uh, transcendent, like creedal values that we share as Americans. Hmm. So the Constitution, uh, you know, or 
you know, or the, excuse me, the Declaration of Independence says, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by the creator with certain inalienable rights, that among them are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It goes on to say that this is, you know, uh, 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 this is this is government, you know, by the by the people, right? Like that 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 the, the by the consent of the governed, right? So like we we have this, um, we have this these creeds of like legal equality, and like that's that's something that we all value. Like in the Constitution, we have amendments that uh, promise uh, religious liberty and freedom of the press. Uh, and, and, and yes, I think some things need to be like adjusted or amended to account for like technological advances, like sure. the right to bear arms does not extend to Apache helicopters and bazookas, right? right? Like, right, exactly. because they couldn't imagine such things. <laughs> right. And, and how must our, how must our understanding of freedom of speech, um, and freedom of the press be adjusted to account for these new realities of massive misinformation that can cost millions of lives right. by the spreading of misinformation, right? Like that's, right. that's a hard one. Right. But I, I do think um, we as Americans can rally uh, behind a common creed of liberty, equality, full democratic representation, uh, and, and, and an opposition, frankly, to anything that smacks of like a, a fascism that wants to suspend democratic uh, participation and access so that one group can stay in power under this kind of myth of like national greatness or purity. That's where you start to get like Jason Stanley's book, like, you know, how fascism works. He really digs into this idea of how often the language of like cultural purity or like national prominence or like some mythical past that we need to get back to. And what do we need to do? Well, like for a temporary time, we maybe need to suspend some kind of like democratic rights or like all the, you know, I don't want to do that. Like, I, right. I, don't, I don't, I don't, I don't want to do that to these people. I do think there, that is, it is fair game to like marginalize them and to call them out and to say, uh, to say, Hey, this, your views have no, no place in the 21st century. Yeah. And they really have no place in an American democracy that says all people have equal access and, and say, and representation. Yeah you can't highlight one group's culture over another. And I recognize that's kind of like a circular argument because like, isn't that a culture? Like, isn't that a cultural argument to say sure. you can't highlight one group's culture over the other, but that's also, also that is also constitutional. <laughs> and so right. like you can't make a law establishing uh, a religion or, or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. And so within that, we have to understand that we can't institutionalize uh, one religion uh, over and 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 one's understanding of their religion or expression of religion or an ethno religion over another groups as like we are, are uniting around this kind of national identity. Yeah. I see people trying to advocate for that kind of thing, and yeah. I say certainly that seems uh, profoundly un-American. But the thing is, most Americans think that. Like I was actually really encouraged when Pew Research came out in I think uh, late October or November with their recent report. Um, they asked all these questions. They had this like big sample, like all of this kind of, all these questions about religious nationalism, Christian nationalism and, and church and state. And I would, I would recommend you go check that out. Mm. And it was very affirming of the things that we have also found in our data, but it also found that like, you know, the, the hardline Christian nationalist view is, is really a minority yeah. in the United States. And yeah. even though it's the plurality of evangelicals, among Americans in general and even Christians in general, it really is the minority. And I think we can 
we can speak to that group of concerned Christians that say, you know, we, we are all better off. Yeah. Yeah. When we recognize that there are, there are religious spheres that include worship, that include community, that include family, that include all of these in our values. And yes, religion influences politics. And yet at the same time, we have to value these core democratic principles of legal equality and freedom of expression and, and speech and, right. and that kind of thing. Which I would hope a healthy Christian ethic would want to emphasize, yeah. right? <laughs> like, right. hmm, you know, maybe we should talk about this. So, and right. I agree with you, you know, I, I used to, you know, as you start out, as I started out, started out in this journey, it was kind of like, okay, uh, being political is bad. But now I'm like, well, it's not about that being bad. It's, it's how are we political? How are we advocating for our neighbor? How are we advocating for the least of these, right? What does it look like when you live when you live in a country that has 30% of the world's wealth and 8% of the world's population and people still can't get affordable health care you know how do we act, how do we advocate for those kinds of policies so i agree with you sam you know the issue isn't or or i should say the response isn't oh christians shouldn't be political it's 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 can we please be more faithful to, yes. to the teachings of jesus right? right and also more empathetic towards our neighbor uh, right. and, and seek the good of the human uh, of the humanity that we're in relationship with as a culture. Yeah. And that sounds profoundly Christian to me, right? Like that, you know, that, that's, that, that really does seem more Christ-like as an, as an approach, as somebody who I have a seminary degree and I know my Bible uh, really well, that seems really consistent with a, with a, 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 a you know, a gospel centered uh, theology, uh, you know, uh, promoted by people who don't see this place as their home and have a citizenship in heaven, you know, like, and that's, yeah. And that's okay. Um, I, I will say, like, in terms of book recommendations, sure. Uh, one, one coming out, uh, other than other than my own. So, like, the Flag of the Cross. But, I, but I, I had already mentioned that, so I'm not really referencing that. But like, coming out in July, Paul Miller, who is a uh, who has worked for like uh, um, Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. He's a he's a, a teaching professor at uh, at Georgetown, hmm. uh, a war veteran, but also a, like a, a deep thinker in kind of uh, theology and Christian nationalism and politics. He's written a book called uh, "the The Religion of American Greatness: What's Wrong with Christian Nationalism." It's coming out with InterVarsity Press. Oh, great! Uh, and it is a, I mean, it is it's three hundred pages, but it is beautiful. Like it is a great. He, he really tackled, like, I tackle these things as a sociologist and I bring the data uh, to bear on these kinds of questions. Paul is really more approaching this as a theologian and as a political theorist. Love it. Uh, and he addresses all of the arguments for, like, religious national, Christian nationalism, nationalism in general, or cultural nationalism. And he, he goes after all the guys. Like, he doesn't go after them. I don't mean to say he's not ugly. Right. But he addresses all of their arguments. And he rips it apart. Like, I mean, it, it is so, it is so good. So like I, I would recommend, and I will be recommending uh, concerned Christians uh, who, who really want to like live this out as Christians, right? Like right. Not, it's not a book for like secular Americans who just want to like rip into like evangelicals or conservative Christians. Like this is a book for Christians who are really concerned about this. And he, I mean, he provides all the all the, all of the philosophical and theological ammo, I think, to go into these conversations. And so I, I would recommend that one. It's coming out in July. Great. 
I have a connection to IVP, so I'll reach out to them because I would love to get him on the show as well. Um, oh, you should. When, yeah, when you should. Absolutely. Because, if you can get the proofs yeah, beforehand. To I might the book try and do and that because that. It's, it's I would be love that. That'd be great. Yeah. All right. Well, listen, Sam, I mean, we covered so much. You spent an hour and 15 minutes with me. It's flown by. And I appreciate you taking the time while you're, you know, taking some time away uh, from, from, from your work. So it means a lot. And I'm going to try and get this episode up. I think I'm going to put it up for, um, for, for January 6th. I, th- I think it's an important conversation that, that that we should that the audience should be thinking about and reflecting on and meditating on throughout the day as we try and you know unfortunately remember a really horrific date but also recognize the Christian implications and how I believe as evangelicals especially people who are trying to push the church the evangelical church forward how we need to really own what happened on the sixth and say we, we're working on trying to make this better because we know how problematic it is you know was yeah, I directly right. responsible for what happened on the sixth no, but did I grow up in that system and participate in it at times? Yes. And as yeah. someone who claims to follow the same Jesus as these people, we have to recognize that, right? And I, I think, at least for me, I've been working on my uh, my corporate repentance <laughs> of saying, on behalf of these people, <laughs> I repent. Yeah. Um, and so I, I think we're going to try and do that. So I appreciate you making time. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is a great conversation. I'm sure we'll do it again. Good, Be good. Stigmas around mental health were designed to hold us down, but we don't have to let them. If you're struggling, text or call 988 to connect with a trained crisis counselor who won't judge, just listen. 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. Hope has a new number.